Hey, good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Doing well? Good, good, good. Good to see you all. Uh, it's been said, I'm Josh, I'm one of the pastors here, so really grateful to have you here worshiping with us or online this morning. Welcome. And uh, our, our mission here at Mosaic is to unite people in the way of Jesus. And what that means is that no matter where you've been, where you've come from, where you're going, we welcome you to join us on the journey of following Jesus, being with Jesus, of being like Jesus, and doing the things that Jesus does. That's, that's our mission, that's our aim, that's our goal, and that's what we're about. Uh, today, we are going to begin a new series through the book of Ephesians. We're going to talk about God's grand design, grand plan for the church. And so our hope is, whether you've grown up in the church and you're kind of like a pro at this religious stuff, whatever that means anyway, uh, or if you're not even sure, if you're kind of skeptical, you kind of maybe got dragged here, uh, or you just kind of stumbled on this place, no matter where you've been uh, or, or what your familiarity is with Scripture, we hope that there's something for you to take away uh, to maybe encourage you. Uh, you might even find some challenge in there, and there's probably a bit of both, because how many of you know life is, is full of encouragements and challenges? And Jesus and, and Scripture gives us that, sometimes in the, in the same kind of time frame, same message. And so we hope that during this series that uh, we, can, we can dust off Ephesians if it seems like, you know, irrelevant, or even if you've read it a bunch of times, heard a bunch of sermons on it, uh, that there's something new and something fresh that um, we, we believe God wants to do in our lives and in our church. So Ephesians is written like a letter styled after other correspondence in the, uh, in the first century ancient Near East. It, uh, as we get into it, you'll, you'll see that uh, letter writing in, in the ancient Near East was kind of reversed of, of how we do our letters. We do a to uh, and then a from at the end, you know, to at the beginning and then, and then from at the end. Uh, they actually reversed that. We see Paul identifying himself, who he is, and then at the end, he does a bunch of greetings and, and says that, you know, who, who it applies to, things like that. So it's really interesting. And Ephesians, in and of itself, is unique because Paul is not writing in the same style of the other letters that he writes that we uh, know as the New Testament. He's not writing to cl- correct some theological error or uh, to intervene in some church crisis. This is Paul writing to some people that he's familiar with. In fact, he's been to Ephesus twice Through his journeys, he planted the church, and then he goes back to visit them and stays for over three years. So he's very familiar with the recipients of this letter. It's as if Paul is writing to uh, some longtime friends of his, and and they're to take this letter uh, and to to disperse it or circulate it among other church communities in the the Ephesus region. So um, it's, it's Paul writing not to convince them of something, but to remind them of something that they're probably, they've heard either bits or pieces or good chunks of what we're going to read uh, in the next few weeks. So again, he's not writing to convince, he's writing to remind. And so you may find yourself in that place of needing to be reminded of these truths of scripture. So you're very much in the same spot. Uh, there, there were, however, people in those church communities that didn't know Paul or had never met Paul, and so they're hearing it for the first time as the letter is being uh, read to them. And so uh, Paul's teaching ministry hasn't been mostly about the transmission of information, though. It's been mostly about the transformation of lives. So let me say that again, because 
our style of learning in the West is mostly about collecting and memorizing information. The Hebrew understanding was much more about here is a truth and therefore let it change, let it affect, let it transform your life. It's more about internalizing and then acting differently in light of that reality. So Paul is writing to his good, good friends who he wants to see their lives continue to be transformed under the leadership, under the lordship of Jesus, right? It seems as though Paul is convinced that they will be changed by God as they experience more of God through the truths, through the, 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 the writings that he's sending them, okay? So I want you to imagine this. Imagine that if you were to load up your family here in Manhattan, Manhattan area, and drive west to go to the Grand Canyon, okay? You drive through the flatlands of Kansas, you wind through the mountains of Colorado, you, the, the soil changes colors, the west you, it gets browner and, and redder and, and, and yellower the, the, the further west into the desert that you go. You're excited that you're gonna see the Grand Canyon, that's all the kids can, can talk about on the way. You passed uh, numerous uh, Native American reservations. You stop along the way to hit some hole-in-the-wall diners that you maybe see Guy Fieri like hit along the way. So you, you make sure you hit and, and you kind of change, like see how it compares to Kansas barbecue, all those little spots, and it's never, never quite as good as, as Kansas City Joe's. But anyway, um, so you pine for home a little, but you continue on westward and you make it. You and your family, in your, in your family truckster, you're there, peering out over the Grand Canyon through your windshield. And it's, it's quite a relief to like make it to your destination and take in the beauty and the grandeur. And so you guys, you open up the cooler, you grab some sandwiches, you pop some drinks, you kind of debate if it's soda or pop in this region of the United States, you're not quite sure. And so you eat, you just take it all in. And then one more view as you turn around and see the Grand Canyon get smaller and smaller in your rear view mirror. Now, technically, you went to the Grand Canyon, right? Although you never got out of your car, you, you technically went to the Grand Canyon. You could tell people, I took some pictures of the Grand Canyon. But, but did you go to the Grand Canyon? Like, is that, is that, it's technically true, but it's like, is that really true? Now, imagine if you had actually gotten out of the car and walked up to the edge and, and experienced the drop-off and all the miles of winding canyon. Imagine that you took, had taken a hiking trip. You'd gone down one side of the rim, you camped at the bottom of the gorge and up the other side, and that is being at the Grand Canyon, isn't it? That's quite a different experience than just saying, yeah, I parked at the edge of it versus I was in the middle of it. I was in the middle of the grandeur. I took in all the glory. I have the, the sweat and the blood and the tears to prove that I was at the Grand Canyon. I think for a lot of us, it, God experiencing God is similar to that. Some of us come up to the edge, but we never quite make it out of our car. And Paul is inviting us to a quite a different experience than just reading a letter or hearing a couple sermons and going, yeah, the goodness of God, check, I got that. Paul is wanting us to experience the overwhelming delight that God has to offer those that belong to him. It may be different, it may be unique for different people. Not everyone's going to have the same encounter, same experience, the same takeaways as God. But if we're grounded in the scripture, if we're grounded in Jesus and we take him up on his offer to throw ourselves in the midst of his glory, his presence, 
We'll be marked, we'll be changed. That's what God wants for us, to actually be changed, not to have a bunch of information. It starts there, but don't let it end there with just good, interesting facts about God. Now, Scripture makes accommodations for those who are just beginning their journey. So if you don't feel like you even understand what I'm talking about, it's okay. That's okay. Again, our hope is, no matter if you grew up in church, that you walked away, maybe you're coming back, or this is maybe your first time here in a church like this, a church ever. There is something that God has for you that you can, you can actually experience. Uh, I love what uh, Lynn Kohick says in her commentary. Uh, Lynn is a, uh, she's at Northern Seminary. She's a phenomenal biblical scholar. She says this in her book, the letter to the Ephesians soars to celestial heights in its description of God's powerful grace and pauses over familial and community relationships common in the first century. The epistle, and that's another word for letter, the epistle offers a spatial map of the cosmos to locate God the Father, Christ the Lord, and the Holy Spirit, as well as the believer's position. Ephesians narrates a plot that begins before the creation of the world, continues with God's redemption of his people from sin and the creation of a new people in Christ and promises eternal fellowship with God and fellow believers. It picks up the story of two human groups, Jews and Gentiles, labeled by our nearness or distance from God and characterized as devout or or idolaters. The climax of the narrative is the revealing of God's mystery, the Messiah who establishes the kingdom of Christ and of God, who redeems sinners for God and who creates a new people in himself, the body of Christ. Evil vice for power and influence, but God prevails, for Christ has been risen, and the Spirit's seal is immutable. The final chapter of this redemption story celebrates the full realized kingdom of God, wherein Christ brings all things to unity in himself. So that's what we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks. So let's jump in to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chooses us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So again, Paul is writing to a community of Christians that he is familiar with, having visited them twice on his missionary journeys. Ephesus was a major city. It was the capital of the region that it was situated in, and it was one of the four major hubs of Christian activity and missionary movement. Okay, it, it takes its place alongside Jerusalem, Antioch, and Rome as important cities in that region at the time where believers gathered and then were sent from there. Uh, Ephesus where Paul, where, was where Paul's protege Timothy resided and pastored. Uh, to these brothers and sisters, Paul writes these important words, which in a way serves as the thesis of the entire letter. He says this, this is the thesis. We are delighted in by God, and he has chosen us to live in wholeness and without shame in deep community with him and with others. So let me say that again. We are delighted in by God. This is the whole point of the whole letter. We are delighted in by God. And he has chosen us to live in wholeness and without shame and in deep community with him and with each other who are other Christians. 
So the rest of the letter really is commentary on these first few verses of Ephesians. So the rest of the letter uh, is, is uh, comment, uh, commentating on this. We pick up again in verse five. In love, and, and as you'll notice, let me just hit pause. There's way more stuff here than I could ever begin to talk about in a 35, 40 minute sermon. You know that, right? Like there's way more. It's like I read, uh, part of this is one big uh, sentence, one long sentence. Paul, Ephesians is famous for Paul writing a big, long, run-on sentence in the Greek. And we in English have like decided where to put commas and periods and stuff like that. This is all one thought to him about how great God is, how loved we are, and what the, the end point of humanity is, 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 is aiming at, okay? So there's just a lot, okay? But we're gonna move on, okay? Uh, in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. Sonship is a, is a standing. Uh, uh, women can be the sons of God like men can be the bride of Christ, Okay, so it's not a gendered thing, it's a standing before God. Uh, adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. So Paul says that we have been chosen to be a part of his family. This was made possible by Jesus' sacrificial gift of his life and the forgiveness of all our sin made through that act of love. This is the free gift that's offered to all to which Paul is intimately aware, okay? His own life, Paul's life, if you remember from the book of Acts, uh, was, is a testimony of God's free grace and, and, and forgiveness. Remember, he was a persecutor of the early church. He was, he was raised as a, uh, a Jew, and he was very zealous to keep the, the, the law and protect it from this, this sect of Christians. And so he persecuted Christians. He gathered them up, was consenting to many of their deaths, and, and Jesus met him supernaturally on the road to Damascus, rendered him blind, knocked him off his, off his donkey, and Paul's life was changed in that moment. So he became one of the most outspoken proponents of the church and of Jesus after that encounter. So he knows what it's like to experience forgiveness and to be given a calling and a purpose that changes his life, that transforms him and sets him in another direction under the leadership of Jesus. So what Paul is writing isn't some abstract theory, but a lived experience for him. So as we read this, we can sense Paul's excitement. So that's what I want you to get. I want you to, to hear the heart of Paul behind his writings. Okay, He continues in verse 8. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purposes of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory." So here's, here's what I don't want you to miss. God's plan for all of eternity, for human history, referred here to as a, as a mystery, has been revealed now to the church. 
God will bring all things together and unite them under the leadership of his son, Jesus. Jesus will rule the nations as a king in perfect love and justice. And as a sign, God has given to us his very spirit to those who who believe and follow Jesus, have surrendered their lives. He puts his very spirit in us for guidance and direction as as a promise of the inheritance that is to come. So you may have thought that believing in Jesus was like a get-out-of-jail-free card or something like that. But in reality, if you have surrendered your life to King Jesus, you have become a part of this upside-down kingdom that advances through sacrificial love. This is the way of Jesus. When we talk about what the, we're, we're here to unite people in the way of Jesus, it's the way of sacrificial love. That's the way the kingdom expands. Not through coercion, not through manipulation, not through power and control and, and those kinds of, of, of evil authority. It's through laying down one's life. It's the willful full betterment of another, their condition, their state, their life. That is the way of Jesus. And it's the way that all of human history will unfold until its crescendo. Christmas and Easter are just the first part of this play uh, to Jesus' return. It's no wonder that Christians have been persecuted since the time of Jesus. We proclaim another king. There is no king but Jesus. Caesar is no king. He's not the true king. He's a puppet king. He's, he's a placeholder king. And that's what got the early church in trouble, persecuted, killed, shoved to the margins, all that. Um, We proclaim another king who will require all other kings, CEOs, prime ministers, and, and other people in places of whatever authority they're in to relinquish their hold on fallen systems of coercion and control. We proclaim that Jesus will return to rightfully rule, but in a way that our current world systems consider ineffective and inefficient. I mean, a world that's held harmoniously together by gentle love. Who, who, who wants to be a part of that? Well, hopefully you do, because that's what you signed up for when you surrendered your life to Jesus. So several times in this letter, as we see here, Paul breaks into praise. He, he writes about the mystery of Christ, not just the plan of salvation, but where human history is going and the church's place under the leadership of Jesus to advance the kingdom through sacrificial love. And we notice that Paul is overwhelmed with gratitude. He is delighting in God's plan. He sees God's plan and he's excited to tell more and more people about God's plan and invite them into it to to take a place and to be a part of God's plan. Ephesians, um, let me back up. Paul breaks into praise here and invites the reader to do, do the same. He is experiencing uncontainable joy and it's infectious as he celebrates the work of Jesus uh, that's finished, but also this unfolding plan. Here's what I want you to get. Paul receives the delight that God has for him and then returns it as gratitude right back to him as his heart overflows with delight. He receives God's delight, he understands God's plan, and he erupts with joy right back to God. Many times he, he talks about the praise of God's glory the gratitude that he's experiencing for God's wisdom and his leadership over planet Earth and the entire cosmos. 
So this is quite a feat for someone like Paul, because if you know his situation, he's in prison right now. In fact, uh, uh, Ephesians is considered one of the prison epistles or the prison letters, because Paul wrote several letters from a Roman prison. He was arrested for his faith in Jesus, for proclaiming his faith and challenging the worship of Caesar. And so they threw him in a Roman prison. They put him in lock and chain. He's in disgusting, uh, unsafe, uh, unhealthy, unsanitary conditions. And still in that place of that Roman, it's like a hole in the ground, basically. He's erupting with praise and he's sending encouragement and sending on delight invitations for more joy to these, to these uh, churches. It's, it's, uh, quite incredible once you think about Paul's condition and what he's experiencing and inviting us into at the same time. Gratitude is an important practice. Here, I want to make a shift here then. I want to talk about gratitude and why it's so important for us. And then I, at the end, I want to talk about uh, a few hindrances for experiencing delight in God or, or being able to enter into the praise, the worship, the delight back to God, okay? So Amy Morin, who is a, a, an author, social worker, and a psychotherapist, wrote an article called uh, Seven Scientifically Proven Benefits of Gratitude. We know what it's like to not experience gratitude. We know the cynicism, the hopelessness, the kind of grouchiness that comes with, with not being grateful. I briefly just want to talk about the seven things that, and this isn't an exhaustive list, it's just her article, um, but it's seven things that science has proven. So we have secular audiences even proving why gratitude is important for our well-being. First, it opens the door for more relationships, right? Uh, gracious people uh, have more friends because they're more fun to be around, I think. Right? It's hard to be around grouchy people unless you're griping about the same issues, right? <laughs> Grateful people forgive more easily, feel less lonely, and are more willing to help others. Uh, gratitude lifts physical health. Uh, grateful people are healthier. They don't get sick as often. They have lower blood pressure. Uh, gratitude improves physical, uh, sorry, psychological health. People who, who uh, experience like rhythms of gratitude experience more positive emotions, such as happiness, joy, and pleasure on a daily basis. It enhances empathy and reduces aggression. People who uh, demonstrate gratitude have better quality of sleep. It benefits self-esteem. Grateful people are able to appreciate other people's accomplishments. Uh, life doesn't seem like a... a, a uh, just a, a total sum game or a zero sum game where everybody has their piece of pie and we're all vying for the same pie. Grateful people can see and celebrate other people's accomplishment. doesn't threaten their joy. People who demonstrate gratitude also uh, experience an increased mental strength. Uh, it's actually been demonstrated that, that AIDS patients who demonstrated gratitude were shown an increased ability to overcome the trauma from their affliction. So, opens the door to more relationships, physical health, psychological health. Uh, oh, I forgot this one. Empathy and reduces aggression. I think that speaks for itself. Quality of sleep, self-esteem, and mental strength. So if you're, need, you're in need of any of those things, I, I would say uh, maybe practice regular uh, rhythms of gratitude. There's, a, there's that phrase, uh, count your blessings. You know, it's kind of trite, it's kind of like, okay, grandma, I get it, it's fine. But like, our grandmas knew something that maybe we didn't. 
because grandma lived a lot longer, right, than people do these days, because she demonstrated a, a, a grateful attitude, rhythms of, of counting, naming blessings, thanking God for things. Uh, remember a few weeks ago, I talked about the stages of faith and how we progress along the spiritual journey. People in the, in the, the latter stages of faith, stages five and six, seem to just be able to be grateful for even small things. They, they just, I don't know if you've been around people that are like, like, wow, this salad is amazing. You're like, dude, it's a salad. Uh, yeah, but it's so great. I wasn't expecting that it was this great. It's like, yeah, but it's, it's, it's food my food eats. Like, what's up? Like, how are you so grateful for that? People who are grateful and who are healthy holistically demonstrate regular rhythms of this kind of gratitude. Now, I do want to name that there are seasons in which it's hard to find gratitude, to find things to be grateful for. And I think this is also not an exhaustive list, but it's something that, that I've considered our church community, um, those people that, that, that we are in uh, doing life with, there, there are three things that I think many of us are in seasons or have come out or are going into seasons where it's just hard to experience the delight of God and find things to be grateful for. And those things are theology, anxiety, and doubt. And I name them not to shame any of us and not to condemn us, but actually to name them so that we can make space for each other as we're navigating seasons where it's hard to be glad and it's hard to sense God's presence and to be delighted in in, in God's activity in our lives. So I wanna start, again, not exhaustively, but I wanna name uh, theology, anxiety, and doubt as things to overcome and to be aware of in our lives that block our ability to, be, to feel delighted in by God and give delight back to God, okay? So I wanna talk about theology first. Many of us have grown up hearing conflicting messages about who God is. And you come into your adult life still trying to sift through what's true from what's false. And the fallout is that you wonder what the truth is about God and what he wants from you, okay? You may have been told or you may have picked up some of these messages along the way. God is angry at you because you're a sinner and that's all you'll ever be. You are a sinner who struggles to love God and that's your core identity and God is just kind of always like mad or sad about your condition. God's wrath, you may have heard. God's wrath is bearing down on you and it could take you out at any moment if you do something wrong. So God is basically kind of a referee in the sky with a whistle, just waiting to bring the thunder. It's kind of like Zeus with thunderbolts, just waiting and they've got your name on them. You may have heard, God's a conservative, so you can't vote Democrat. You may have heard, God's a liberal, so you can't vote Republican. You may have heard, God only uses men in leadership, so if you're a woman, you'd better get comfortable with that. And you may just have picked up some message along the way that God is distant, cold, harsh, brutal, and impatient. Some of these things, people don't even have to say this, it's how we even talk about God or treat each other. It could have been how authority figures, moms, dads in our life, uh, we were brought up in the home thinking that's what authority figures are like, so that's what God must be like. So a lot of this um, is learning by unlearning false images that we have about God. Because how many of you know, 
if there's someone who's mad at you all the time, how warm and fuzzy do you feel towards them? Not very, right? If God is cold or harsh or impatient with you, how close do you feel like getting to him? How much delight do you think is in that relationships that you're currently experiencing? Not very much, right? So we need, we need a fresh understanding of who God really is. We need an upgrade on our, on our image of God so that the relationship can flow freely and lightly, just as Jesus promised, to have the fullness of life connected to God in our relationship with him. Because if we picked up these messages, what do we do with Jesus, who we see valuing and including women, rebuking religious leaders who are controlling and authoritarian? He's not getting involved with Roman politics. He's telling his disciples to grab a sword, and later he tells his his, uh, disciples to put their swords down. What do we do with Jesus who willingly gave himself to die? had all the time in the world for children and welcomed the impoverished and the diseased and wasn't swayed by any popular opinion. So he was who he was and you just had to deal with it. What do we do with a Jesus like that? What do you do with a Jesus that you can't control, that you don't always fully understand, but he kind of thrills you and he always invites you and he demonstrates what love looks like in action? What do you do with a Jesus like that? I think we follow him and we learn from him. Because who Jesus is, he is the perfect representation of what the Father is like. Any theology that you can't find in the person or work of Jesus is faulty theology. Jesus is perfect theology. And he is perfect love. And so a lot of this life is letting go of false assumptions that we've had about God. False theology that has actually blocked our relationship with God. Let Jesus Upgrade it and replace it with truth and be changed in the process as you grow closer to him, okay? Um, one of my, I, there's a quote I came across a few years ago that I really like that has upgraded again and again my, my image of God. You know, pastors also have, you know, faulty assumptions about who God is because we're, we're apprentices to Jesus just like everybody else. And so I'm on a growth path to, to go, oh, I gotta, that is, that's terrible theology to talk about God like that. I'm constantly like learning new things about God because he's inexhaustible. His wisdom is unminable, right? So Thomas J. Ord in his book, The Uncontrolling Love, Uncontrolling Love of God says this, a God worthy of our worship cannot be someone who causes, supports, or allows genuine evil. In fact, I believe it is impossible to worship wholeheartedly a God who loves half-heartedly. Man, that's so good. Can I read that again for us? Um, I believe it is impossible to worship wholeheartedly a God who loves half-heartedly. It just, that pierces my heart as I read it. We might fear a God who helps sometimes, but other times chooses not to. But we cannot admire this God unreservedly. God's eternal nature is uncontrolling love. Because of love, God necessarily provides freedom slash agency to creatures, and God works by empowering and inspiring creation toward well-being. God also necessarily upholds the regularities of the universe because those regularities derive from God's eternal nature of love. 
Randomness in the world and creaturely free will are genuine, and God is not a dictator mysteriously pulling the strings. God never controls others, but God sometimes acts miraculously in non-coercive ways. God providentially, uh, providentially guides and calls all creation toward love and beauty. Second is anxiety. Anxiety oftentimes blocks our delight in God. It's no secret that we live in an anxious age. We don't want to hide that there is so much anxiety in ourselves and in the networks of relationships. So this is not a, I'm anxious and I just can't tell anybody or I can't share it with my church community. Uh, because anxiety, though, we, we need to identify it and we need to manage it. Because anxiety, when we either ignore it or excuse it, affects us and others and can move us further away from the flourishing that God's, God promises. Uh, Steve Cuss, uh, author, former pastor, uh, in his book, wrote uh, Managing Leadership Anxiety, has written, the goal of managing anxiety is not simply for relief. It is to connect more fully with God and to raise awareness of what God is doing. Anxiety blocks our awareness of God because it takes our subconscious attention. That's an important point. This is why anxiety can be so wearying because it actually takes our focus off of God and his presence and it causes us to like manage or ignore or like just figure out what's going on inside of us. Um, anxiety blocks our awareness of God because it takes our subconscious attention. This means that anxiety can be an early detection system that we're depending on something other than God for our well-being. Of course, not all anxiety is a sign that we're off base. If your child is playing on the highway and you're anxious about it, that is a sign to act, not to pause and consider what might be blocking God. That's a good word. But in many leadership and relational situations, anxiety is a warning sign that something is getting in the way of your well-being. What exactly is getting in the way? Anxiety is a signal, not a root cause. It is a siren that a storm might be coming. It is not the storm itself. Getting to the root cause is key to transformation and systemic health. By paying attention to what was bubbling underneath of myself and managing it, I discovered new levels of freedom and a profound encounter with God's grace. I experienced genuine spiritual breakthroughs of patterns that had previously held me stuck. Isn't that what we want? We want to be unstuck and we want to be free to experience God's delight in us and return it back to him. Okay. So at Mosaic, we want to support you as you seek help to get awareness of what anxiety that it is you're carrying. Uh, here at Mosaic, it's not faith versus counseling, okay? We believe in theology and therapy. We believe in prayer and Prozac, if you will, okay? Our leaders are themselves. Uh, they have sought coaches. We have sought coaches, counselors, therapists, and spiritual directors to discern what God is doing in our lives and what may be blocking our re receptivity to it. So, Get you some help, and we will cheer you on every step of the way. So, and I want to tell you, know this, it is not our job to fix you. I don't have the capability to do that. I'm having a, a, a hard enough time working on myself, and I have two children and a very, very fierce wife, so I've got my hands full in my household. It's not my or our job to fix each other. Okay? You are not an object to be fixed. You're a person to be loved. That's our goal. That's our job. 
we, what we will do is we will help invite, we, what we hope to do is invite you into a space where there's no shame and there's no blame, but we hold you and we hold each other up to the light of Jesus. And we let all the things that don't measure up to the love of Jesus gently be, be removed so that you can be wholehearted, right? So that's what scripture, when it talks about holiness, it's really wholeheartedness towards God. It's really wholeness in the human frame. That's what holiness means. We want you to be free of shame and we want you to be whole. That's what we're here to do as we step closer to Jesus. It's a place where there's freedom to love and be loved and find deeper delight in God. Okay, so false theology, anxiety, and the third is doubt. And doubt is related oftentimes to theology, false theology, and anxiety as you're trying to figure out next steps on your your faith journey, okay? There are those of us here who are walking a long and sometimes lonely road of doubt. You've heard all the religious platitudes like have more faith, pray harder, are you reading your Bible enough, or even blaming, like what did you do to get yourself in this situation? And a lot of times if you're walking the road of doubt, some kind, sometimes called deconstruction, the answer is, I don't know what's going on. I have no idea. I can't tell up from down. I, I don't know what I did or didn't do. I don't know where God is right now. We don't need religious platitudes. We need, we need a, a blame-free, shame-free place to be walked alongside with and loved, okay? Um, so you'll find here at Mosaic a space to explore that. We believe, along with existential philosopher and Lutheran theologian Paul Tillich, doubt is not the opposite of faith. It is an element of faith. I really do believe that. In fact, uh, the brother of Jesus agrees with this approach. So Jude chapter 1, verse 22 says this, Be merciful to those who doubt. Do you know why Jude can say that? The brother of Jesus. Because Jude didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah when Jesus came to earth. He's like, yeah, yeah, bro. I get it, like you're important, but the Messiah, like seriously? <laughs> yeah, whatever, right? He called him crazy, he called him all sorts of stuff. And then when Jesus was resurrected, Jude goes, oh, my bad, dude, <laughs> that's on me. So Jude's like, hey, be merciful to those who doubt, like me, <laughs> right? So we wanna hold space for those who doubt, who are in a space of like, I don't know what faith is anymore, not sure what I believe about God. I don't know where I am on the journey. It, again, if you remember a few weeks ago when I talked about stages of faith, that's very much a, a part of uh, a, the stage of growth, growing in your faith, is coming to a point where it's like, I have some stuff I'm peeling away from my theology and I feel really unsure about anything right now. Just know that we, we love you and it's gonna be okay. I don't know how it's gonna be okay, but it will be okay, all right? Many of us have gone through that. Many of us still are going through that, okay? God isn't scared of your questions. There's no thought or no question that could catch God off guard. Like, whoa, I've never thought about that before. That's a good point. Like, he's not sitting up there kind of anxious or like, you know, he's got a big thick rule book and he's like, hey, let me hang on. Like, I need to see what section that, that question falls under to see if that's even appropriate for you to ask me that. You know, God of the universe and all. Like, like he is not threatened 
by you asking hard questions or saying this doctrine I'm not really sure of or I, I don't know how to, how to make these two things fit together in my mosaic of belief. That's okay, he's not threatened or scared by that. Jesus got asked hard questions all the time. Now, sometimes in bad faith, he asked harder questions right back, but, but those that were broken and were really seeking answers, direction, he always welcomed them. He always challenged them, but he always welcomed them to come follow him. There's no question that's gonna make God, it's gonna make Jesus give up on you. Jesus gets it because he knows what it's like. This weak human frame with these limitations, he walked as one of us. Uh, Peter Enns in his book, The Sin of Certainty, says this. And by the way, uh, Peter Enns is great. I don't agree with everything, every conclusion. We can quote people where you don't agree with 100% of the theology. That's just kind of a good rule that I have that maybe if you read a couple of, of Peter Enns' other books, you're like, dude, what is that guy? I don't know. I just like this quote. So that's enough, right, for now? Okay, he says this. Doubt is God's instrument. Will arrive in God's time and will come from unexpected places, places out of your control. So when it does, resist the fight or flight impulse. Pass through it patiently, honestly, and courageously for however long it takes. True transformation takes time. Struggling with faith is normal. Journey and pilgrimage have become powerful words for me, describing the life of faith. I have come to expect periods of unsettledness, uncertainty, certainty, and fear to remind me who I am where I am, and what I think, think do not define reality. Facing and then truly being present with my experiences along the way help me remember that my experiences at any moment are not the entire journey, including those periods where God is distant. I have come to believe that periods of struggling and doubt are such common experiences of faith, including in the Bible, that something is meant to be learned from such periods, however long in duration they might be. So you may be in a place of doubt and connected to that is an experienced disconnection from God and it's hard to praise in this moment. It's hard to praise when you're full of anxiety and it's hard to praise when you come in contact with, with a belief about God that doesn't really square with what we're talking about here at Mosaic or even you see in the nature or character of Jesus and that's okay. There's space for us to explore and walk together through these seasons of life, okay? There is one concern, though, that I think sometimes comes up when I talk about um, uh, delighting in God, experiencing God's delight, and naming these uh, as, as disconnections or blockages to delight. Um, you may think, isn't that just spiritual bypassing? To, to come into a worship gathering and, and worship Jesus and, and tell him how good he is, while I have these concerns, while I have this fear, while I have these problems in my life, isn't that just bypassing the problem? Uh, spiritual bypassing is when you minimize a problem and you go around it and you don't acknowledge that it exists. You, you may have heard like, uh, just keep believing, brother. Or like, um, I don't know, things like, let me see. Spiritual bypassing comes up in uh, like misdirection. Uh, brother, all you need to do is keep praising God through the storm. Just focus on heaven and the problems of earth will f fade away. Like to some degree, do you, do you understand that's bypassing. That's like, but I, I'm a human. 
I'm an embodied person with actual like problems and I'm just supposed to ignore that. And, and my response is, uh, and, and I would say spiritual bypassing is really insidious, uh, 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 part of bypassing because it, 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 it makes faith a part of that and it's really confusing to like try and engage God and have problems and have people tell you to ignore your problems in order to focus on God. What we're saying, what I'm saying is, don't ignore your problems. You and I all have problems. We have issues, we have doubts, we have anxiety. It's a real thing. What I'm asking you to do, instead of ignoring, is to right-size them. When we come to a place of delight in God, whether it's praise during a song, whether it's just saying thank you and having gratitude, we, we can hold the tension of, I have these issues that are not going to fix themselves. But I can also right-size them by placing them next to God and talking to God about them. So how many of you know if, 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 I, uh, if I have someone I'm trying to talk to and like my iPad's in the way, my iPad looks really big you know, relative to Mike. But when I come up next to him, it's not as big next to Mike. Mike's a tall dude, right? It's like big guy, right? That's what we need to do with our issues. Not ignore that we have them, but place them alongside Jesus and say, Jesus, can you help with this? And not let the problems be the blockage between us and God. Not even hold God hostage to say, I'm not gonna say thank you until you fix this problem. We need to right-size them and to, to involve God in the conversation as we're still giving gratitude. Because if this problem never gets fixed that I'm sitting in, God is still good. He still has a plan for the world to come under the leadership of Jesus and under sacrificial love. That's a good plan worthy of praise, okay? So as we close, um, I just actually, I'm reminded of this story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Maybe you didn't grow up in church or maybe you're familiar with that story, but there were these two disciples and after Jesus was crucified, after he died, his disciples scattered. No one knew what was going on. Everybody's hopes for a better future were crushed because they did not understand that that was the plan all along. And so they're walking away from Jerusalem, away from the center like of the cultural activity of the church and walking back, giving up their hope in God and going back to their lives as normal. And what does Jesus do? When they're full of doubt, full of cynicism, full of hopelessness, Jesus actually shows up next to them and walks alongside them for miles and miles and miles. Now, they don't recognize him. They don't know it's Jesus. Somehow he's veiled. They think Jesus is dead, and so they're not even expecting an encounter with God. But Jesus walks alongside them and walks them through the scripture slowly and gently on foot as they travel, answering the questions they have about God and about God's plan and about how they fit into it. And so at the end, they recognize Jesus miraculously, and he disappears in their midst. My point in saying that is that sometimes God is walking alongside you, and you may not even know it. You may be carrying doubt. You may be carrying anxiety. You may be, like, your theology may be colliding against itself, and it feels like your system of belief is crumbling. Don't underestimate God, because he may be sending people to you to walk with you alongside He may be offering glimmers of hope, a chance to to look into that better future, 
You just may not be aware of it. Now, I don't wanna put all that back on you and say it's all up to you now. I'm just saying, even if you don't recognize it, God is still there in the midst of that. He's not giving up on you, and he's more than willing to walk alongside you, whatever you feel might be disconnecting you from him, okay? So we're gonna, we're gonna wind this down. I'm gonna have the worship team and the communion servers come on up. Why don't you stand with me? I do have a question. I'd like to leave you with something every week to chew on, to take and apply in your life. And this is a simple question that maybe you can even sit with in the, in, the, in the final moments of worship. You can even dialogue with God as you're partaking of communion. What might be blocking your delight in God? Is there some faulty theology separating you from him? That's, that's allowed to get in between that relationship? Is there some anxiety or some doubt that, that seems to have gotten bigger than God? And you need God to answer that before you will talk to him again. This is just an opportunity to you to do a heart check and to make sure that there aren't any blockages as much as you know of, okay? So we're gonna transition into a time of the Lord's Supper. We've been doing this weekly for quite a while. And what we do is uh, we read the Lord's Prayer together. And then after that, you're welcome to come and line up in the middle, partake of communion. We have a, a gluten-free option in the middle for anyone that needs, needs that. Um, looks like Henry's gonna go back and get, get some tongs, I believe. So there you go. So you might hold off on the gluten-free for just a minute. Uh, but let's say this together. Let's say the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen, amen. This teaching was recorded by Mosaic Church in Manhattan, Kansas, where we're uniting people in the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit mosaicmhk.com.